when I do my leadership programs, I might have 15 CEOs in the room. I go, how many people in the room would like to be fitter than what they are now? And inevitably, 12, 13 put their hand up. And then I say, put your hand up if you don't know how to get fitter. And no one puts their hand up. So it's not the fact that they have a lack of knowledge. They have never had and they haven't been able to create a system for themselves to apply the, the knowledge they have to create the outcome that they're looking for. Welcome to Men of Abundance, the podcast for those looking to level up their lives by hanging out with some of the greatest leaders and established professionals in our community, living a life of integrity, honor, and the abundance mentality. Prepare to pay it forward with your host, former army medic turned lifestyle entrepreneur, Wally Carmichael. What's up, what's up, Men of Abundance? I am Wally Carmichael, your founder and host of the Men of Abundance podcast, the Pay It Forward community, showing you how to live a life of abundance and prosperity in family, faith, finances, and fitness. And before we get into today's conversation, I want to share something with you that I recently had a conversation about. And this is a common conversation being that I am the host and founder of the Men of Abundance podcast and showing people how to live a life of abundance through my own actions and through my own life. Now, there's a much too common ideology out there that in order for you to earn more money, in order for you to obtain more money, gain more money in your life and gain more resources in general, that you have to take from other people. The misunderstanding is that there's buckets of money laying around. And if you take some from one bucket to put it into your bucket, then you're taking from somebody else. And that's not how it works. Now, don't get me wrong. I'm not delusional. I realize that there are people out there that will take from others for their own personal gain, but they're really not nearly as many as the media would make you believe or the movies would make you believe that's been fed to us for many, many years. This is part of the reason why so many people struggle with money, because they're fed these lies and these stories through books, movies, the media, and isolated incidences. Now, there are many, many examples, and I've had conversations with many of the guys, men and women, that you can have examples from. Just go back through the other 290-some-odd conversations here on Men of Abundance, and you will get proof of that. But to share from my own personal experience, if I want to increase my resources and increase my cash flow, then I have to create a professional relationship with another business owner and then share my time, knowledge, and resources to show that business owner how to greatly increase his or her revenue and profits. What I earn through that relationship is a fraction of what that business owner will earn over the course of the time of working with me. Now, I may have increased my monthly income by, say, 1000 to $2,500, but that business owner has increased their revenue by $50,000, $100,000 or more. In other words, in order for me to earn more money, I have to help somebody else make a lot more money in order to justify my fees. And the cool thing is it doesn't stop there. Because when that business owner is doing so much better financially, he or she can offer more benefits to their employees. They can grow as a business and provide their services and products to a wider range of people in other communities, even in other countries. And just like paying it forward, it just goes on and on. Now, when you're in a scarcity mindset and you think that in order for me to earn more money, I have to take from other people, then guess what? You may earn money for a little bit, but ultimately it's all going to come tumbling down. Those are the stories that you hear about in the books and on TV. This is why it's so important to get rid of the scarcity mindset and adopt the mindset of abundance. Another very simple way that you can pay it forward right now is by sharing men of abundance, share these conversations with others in your circle and anyone else that you come in contact with. One cool way to do this on social media is to take a screenshot of your phone while you're listening to the episode and then post that on Instagram, on Facebook, LinkedIn, whatever it is, wherever you like to post and hang out and then tag me and and hashtag abundance, hashtag men of abundance, hashtag MOA, all of the above or at least one of them so that others can find these conversations. And then I'll search for your hashtag and share it and then comment. All right, so let's get into our conversation today. 
Our feature guest is a CEO, leadership coach, and strategist. He works with CEOs and emerging leaders to achieve high levels of trust personally, culturally, strategically, and organizationally as the basis of high performance. After cutting his teeth as a recruiter at the Melbourne Football Club when the Demons made the finals for the first time in 23 years, Cameron was appointed CEO of the famous Richmond Football Club at age 24, the youngest in the history of the game. For most of the next 25 years, he was CEO of Richmond, Melbourne, and Fremantle when those clubs were at their lowest ebb, both on and off the field. He is the second longest serving CEO in the modern game. Having taken on some of the sport's most difficult and daunting challenges, Cameron established a track record of building teams and organizations, unifying groups while navigating periods of genuine adversity and complexity. He is a legacy-focused leader who has bounced back from setbacks, taking on the sport's most challenging leadership roles. Cameron holds an MBA and Master's of Marketing from the Melbourne Business School. He has also completed the Advanced Management Program at the Harvard Business School and is a Vincent Fairfax Fellow at the Center of Ethical Leadership at University of Melbourne. He received his coaching certification from the Columbia Business School in New York. His articles on sport and leadership have been published in the Age newspaper. Cameron is also one heck of an artist and illustrator and studying fine art at the Victorian College of the Arts. And I highly encourage you to check the show notes for some of his art because it is absolutely amazing. Men of Abundance, it is my pleasure to introduce you to Cameron Schwab. Cameron, welcome to Men of Abundance, man. How you doing? Well, thanks for the invitation. I'm really looking forward to this, actually. I've, um, I've been taken by your, uh, your running sheet. I think there's some good stuff that we'll get into here. Yeah, absolutely. I appreciate that. And uh, when I saw what you had going on, man, I just knew I had to have you on the show and introduce you to Men of Abundance for sure. So where are you at in the world? I'm in Melbourne and uh, Melbourne, Australia, southern part of Australia, which is a wonderful place to live and a long way from where you are. Uh, (laughs) But it's it's also uh, probably has the two things which have pretty much been quite defining in my life in abundance here. One is sport, uh, particularly Australian football, which wouldn't mm-hmm. be well known to your part of the world, but it's the biggest game in town from um, from from uh, from an Australian's perspective, and uh, and also it's it's also seen as the, the cultural and artistic uh, heart of um, Australia as well. So, and they're probably two quite defining things in in my life as it's as it's played out. Wonderful, yeah. Thanks for sharing that too. And uh, you know, my listeners know that. Uh, Australia is the one continent that I have not been to yet and has been on yeah. my list of dreams ever since I was a teenager. Uh, I think actually, yeah, for for a very long time. And I was actually close for about 10 years when I lived in Hawaii, uh, but never yeah. did get a chance to get over there for whatever reason. But it's going to happen without a doubt. Yeah, great, great. Well, let me know if you're in town. For sure. So uh, I like to start out with an attitude of gratitude, man. What do you have to be grateful yeah. for today? Yeah, I thought about this a bit. Actually, um, I thought about my grandfather who actually passed away when I was 15 and, and um, he's a guy who comes to mind quite regularly in my life and, and it came to mind particularly recently was um, I went back and studied art when I was uh, in my 50s, fine art at the Victorian College of the Arts, which is the major art school in in, in, uh, in Victoria where I live and uh, and part of the learning from that is that you actually go you, you might go to an art gallery but you don't go to an art gallery just to, to walk through an art gallery you'll go to an art gallery to actually um you know to study a painting and uh and a painting i decided to study was um painting by an artist by the name of francis bacon and it's and it's quite a shadowy sort of figure of an elderly guy and uh and looking at the painting and all of a sudden i had a memory of my my grandfather and and francis bacon was a post-war artist and and my grandfather served in in world war ii and it was he was quite a gregarious happy go lucky character but there was there was always a silence that he had and, and i felt this painting revealed his his silence and and even there's a little bit of sadness because I, I realized there was part of him that i never got to see um, but the part of him that he gave me was um he taught me to draw, really. He showed me how to draw horses. And, and horses are, aren't the, the first thing you'd normally teach a kid how to draw because they're quite complex, you know. Mm-hmm. And um, it was with those big, fat, 
what we call tradie pencils, you know, the, tra- the, the, pa- the pencils that, you know, tradesmen use, you know, and, uh, and, and so he really uh, started my artistic journey and, um, and I'm forever grateful for, for that. And, uh, and, and even in, in, in thinking about the things of, of gratitude, the things that came to mind were the, the ones where, you know, I remember walking past my, my sister's bedroom when I was a little kid in the suburbs and I could hear instant karma, the John Lennon song coming out of her bedroom and, uh, and being taken by the sound and that created a forever love of, you know, uh, it was originally John Lennon, the Beatles and then music and, uh, and later, and even I thought about, you know, my dad used to come in at the end of his work days and, and, and spend 10 minutes sitting at the end of my bed and we just talked through our days. And, and I think probably they're the things I'm grateful for, you know, my, my, the generosity of my, my grandfather, uh, the love of my sister, and obviously the love of my father were, uh, have all been you know, very important things in my life. Yeah, what an amazing gift for your grandfather to give to you, man. That is yeah. absolutely beautiful. So and, you and I think about it, and, it, and as I've got older, it's actually interesting because even physically I can find myself, because you, you think of your grandfather or your grandparents as being very old, and uh, I'm now in my mid-50s, and and I think of um, he passed away when he was in his seventies, but so he was um, not much older than I am now. And uh, and actually, even every so often, I'll, I'll look at photos. I, I can see pieces of myself in those photos. Mm-hmm. And there's and that that notion of lineage and um, and recognizing and understanding where we came came from and, and understanding our own um, origin story, if you like, is. Is a powerful thing to to go through, and something which I'm enjoying doing at the moment. Yeah, I think I'll get into that at some point. Um, I I actually have quite recently done that. I've been calling my aunts those because so much of my family has passed on. My mother and father passed yeah. on real early. My grandparents. I never even met my grandfathers on either side, or my grandmother on my so, mother's side. So I've been talking to my aunts and trying to find out more about my past. Not really yeah. where we're from in the world per se, but more just about who they were and you know what they did. I really don't know much about them, and I've been kind of interested yeah. in that lately. And the decisions that they made yeah. shape who we are so many ways. Like my, my grandfather immigrated from um, from uh, the UK when he was in his twenties, and uh, and so it would have been a very different story had he not have made that choice. For you know, sure, so yeah. it just even. And, and I'd love to know what he was thinking. That would have, that was a very big thing to do. It's a long way, you know. And, and there was there was certainly um, reasons for doing that. You know, I think there was actually even they might have got a little bit of financial support. You know, it was at a time when they're trying to populate the colonies, if you like. And um, so he probably he found himself on a boat for six weeks and uh, in Melbourne. And um, you know, and ten years later, he's serving for Australia in World War Two. Yeah, they're just amazing stories. Absolutely an amazing story. Man, I'd sure like to have that conversation. <laughs> so, yeah. Wow, very interesting. So, you know, before we got started here, I talked a little bit about your professional stuff, what you got going on professionally. Yeah. We're going to get into that. That's part of the reason why I wanted to have this conversation with you. But here on Men of Abundance, we really like to get to know the man behind the abundance and get a little bit more personal. So if you would, how would you describe yourself, Cameron? <coughs> Uh, it's a hard one, isn't it? Like describing yourself in um, – I'm doing a fair bit of writing, the same thing as we talked about previously in terms of understanding your origin story. And um, and, and, I, and one of the stories which came to mind when I was thinking about this was uh, when I was a young guy, I was, I was growing up in the, in the suburbs of Melbourne and it was sort of post-baby boomers uh, generation, but there were a lot of young kids all in the same areas and, and we were skaters and we, in, we rode skateboards everywhere and uh, – and, and I was a couple of years younger than my peer group, and and we just come across a group of other kids, and and it was quite obvious a fight was going to break out, and um, and I, I felt very vulnerable at that time, and and as it turned out, and I've always sensed that maybe this other kid sensed my vulnerability, and uh, and he and he really took me on, and and he made a bit of a mess of me to be honest, and I, and I remember going home that night, and um, and having um, these thoughts about, you know, why did this kid pick me out? You know, what, what was it about that? And and there's almost a, there was almost a little layer of shame in it all. And it was when I when I started writing about it, I then, I wanted to fill in the gaps, a little bit like you ringing your aunties, you know, I wanted to fill in the gaps. So I rang the guy who was my best mate when I was uh, growing up 
and his name's his name's Mick, as in Michael Mick, and uh, and I rang Mick up, and he was actually in hospital at the time because he'd come off his mountain bike or something, and uh, I was a bit worried because I hadn't spoken to him for a while that he might have had something a bit worse going on, and and I just I rang him up and I said, Mick, I just want to talk about a story that um, that we shared when we were young, and he said without me prompting him, he said, oh, you want to talk about the fight, and and I, I couldn't believe that he could remember or, or you know something which had been such a big thing for me but he said because uh, I, I said well, how did you know I wanted to talk about that and he said because I, I talk about it all the time and I said you talk about me getting belted up and uh, getting punched up in a fight <laughs> and he said yeah I, I do and I said because I, I tell people you're the sort of person who puts yourself out there you're the person who'll take a chance you, know, you, you should never have taken that kid on he was much he was always going to beat you and I, whereas my, my take on it was one of almost shame as in that that person detected or saw my vulnerability my weakness my softness whatever it might have been as a as a young i was 12 or 13 i reckon at the time and whereas my best mate of the time holds it out as a story of courage and and i'm the sort of person who will take chances and i I took jobs in life perhaps before i was ready and those sorts of things and and so when you ask to describe yourself um I probably sit somewhere between those two places, you know, between the you know the person who feels very vulnerable at different times in regard to, you know, and people might talk about it in the context of as a leader, as an imposter, that type of thing, or someone who's actually been prepared over time to you know take take chances and uh, back myself in, and I'll probably find myself on that pendulum, you know, pretty much over that period of 30, 40 years, if if that makes sense. I'm not sure if it does, but uh, I, I couldn't think of another way of actually describing it. Wow, that is very interesting uh, because, you know, guys, I always talk about change your story, change your life. And here, yeah. Cameron, you had a story about yourself that the guy that seems to have known you better than maybe even yourself at times saw something completely different. And guys, think about yeah. this. Think about the perspective on that comes from that. The way you're thinking about yourselves, chances are your best friends, your your spouse others around you that know you see something completely different and it's neat that you were able to get that out of him i wonder did he did he think that you felt the same way this whole time or was it did he did he even consider that because obviously he hadn't talked about it before no and no he hadn't and and it was because it was also coincided with another thing My, my parents um took a chance and I, I think they sensed the environment that I was growing up in and that I might have been a person who was going to go either way that I could and and the environment the the, the, ta- the suburbs that I was in um, they just became really rough and tough just it was, not for a long time just for that period of history just because there were so many disengaged kids probably mm-hmm. and and we we're just exploring um, like young men do the you know the various things and and, and my parents one of their solutions to that was to to send me to a school, which was a fair way from where I lived. It used to be a, but it was a, it's what's known as a private school here, so a grammar school, and um, in sort of almost the English tradition of a grammar school. Mm-hmm. And uh, and I felt very much out of my that, that wasn't my natural thing, but I could exact, see exactly what they were trying to do. And my, my parents were also very young. My my my, my mum had my sister, my older sister, at only sixteen, so I had young parents, and uh, and they just were obviously ambitious for us and so I felt like I was living one life on the weekends and a different life during the week and and I remember actually because I had a I had a, a favorite brand it was called Golden Breed it was like a, a surfy brand t-shirt and and I remember getting blood all over this t-shirt because I got it you know I, I got it you know I'd been punched up and and so I got home and, and I snuck in the back door of our suburban home and I went and cleaned myself up and uh and I put this T-shirt into my school bag that I was going to school the next day, and I got on the train. It used to take me about an hour and a half to get to get to school. And I remember, and it was in quite a, a leafy part of Melbourne, you know, one of the the better suburbs. And uh, and I remember sneaking down a, a road and, and putting my my Golden Breed, my Pride and Joy T-shirt into a drain, you know, never to be seen ever again. And then walking into the school, it was almost like. Um, you know, I was closing out one part of my life and, and realising, you know, I had to get on with the next part of my life as a, as a young person and feeling very insecure about doing that. And and so there was a there was no doubt a layer of shame within it all, but also I think within in the context of a, a, 
a change of identity and a loss of identity and um, and and to actually fill in that space with a, a person who's still you know even though we don't speak to each other regularly we we uh, we we can speak to each other in a very open and honest fashion and we've both had our ups and downs in the in the next 40 40 years since we've we've known each other um, but to have a friend like that who could actually say well and, and he's always taken a little bit of pride in the fact that he knew me when I was young because I I then my name gets quite well known through the work that I do in particularly in sport given the the public nature of it that uh, he used to hold out that part of my our friendship as me always with someone because I was younger I was always putting myself out there whereas I always saw myself as just struggling to keep up and <laughs> not being up to that standard you know it was just a totally different take and uh, and and I would have no you know and I know this is one of the questions you ask a little bit later about how you find this I would have no sense of this at all unless I'd actually taken the time to to write and and to dig into my own stories and it, and it's created conversations that I've had with um, you know old friends certainly with my brother and my sister um, we've got a big enough age difference that we had different takes on things as we were growing up uh, particularly an older sister who you know girls maturing quicker than boys and uh, and so these these are these are you know I, I totally agree to to understand what, what you know you, your own truth is actually really quite a difficult thing and particularly when you've added so many layers to it um over over so many years and and it was good to actually you know whether i was right or whether mick was right you know is almost incidental the, the fact is that um it clearly sat somewhere in between and, and it wasn't my it, it, there was no reason for me to have the sense of shame that i that i did mm. Yeah, very interesting. And interesting that you'd have that perspective later in life. But you also, it seems like at the time, um, definitely, uh, man, you just dealt with it, seemed like pretty well as a, as a young man. Uh, um, yeah, yeah, no, I think I was just, um, I think I was ashamed of myself, to mm -hmm. be honest. Um, and so and no, you I carried that with you, you carried that with you through your whole adult life, um, I mean, into I your adult life, at, it I seemed think, like. Yeah, look, I think there's always been a little element of vulnerability there. I've actually been to someone – I got diagnosed with depression when I was in my 30s and I was a CEO of an, of an AFL club. So it'd be like being the, the boss of an NFL team in, mm -hmm. in the US. And um, so I was still, I was still in um, – you know, I used to have a hoodie, which I used to call my Albert Road Clinic hoodie, which was the psychiatric um, – where I went and saw – I had a wonderful relationship with a psychiatrist and I still do for 20-odd for years. And, uh, and so I – I used to wear this um, hoodie into uh, the only time I ever wore a hoodie in my entire life was to sort of cover the because I was I was terrified that people would actually recognise me as I was going into the clinic and um, but I was seeing him every month you know or at least every month for the best part of twenty years and uh, and so I think a little bit came from that as well so there was always two parts you know in regard to that there was the the person who had to put themselves out there and I and I think I I built enough personal confidence to do that um, and I got. Because I was a CEO when I was 24, so I did that very young, and and then to actually uh, to add, I've just become practiced at it, I think, as much as anything. But I think the underlying aspect of it was whether it was the chemistry of me or that other element. There were certainly things I had to work on at quite a personal level to to make sure I could sustain all the other things that I needed to sustain in life. To you know, to to work at that level, to have you know strong relationships, you know, marriages, kids, all that type of stuff. Wow, well, that's pretty deep, man. Thanks for sharing that with us. And, you know, we like to get into this kick in the gut moment. That seemed like a pretty good uh, kick in the gut moment that ultimately changed the trajectory of your life. But if you would, um, share with us a kick in the gut moment that, uh, you know, later on in life that really took you to your knees and help us feel that. Yeah. Yeah, and, and oh, look, there's one, which is, and it, and it literally did take me to my knees. I was... Um, my father was a very well-known person, and um, he was in elite sport as well. So he he worked in the AFL, and um, so my love of the game of Australian football and um, and and Australia, as I said, the only comparison would be the NFL. It's hard. Mm -hmm. It's hard to actually. They're, they're uniquely the NFL's really only played in the states, and, and I I'm a, a mad Packers fan and follow it really closely. And um, I think I'm the uh, I actually. When I finished up in sport, uh, I finished up after 30 years in the AFL four or five years ago. One of my things I wanted to do was take myself to, to Lambeau Field, so I, I did all that. And um, 
and uh, so had, that was almost a, uh, a bit like you coming to Australia one day. That was one of my bucket list mm-hmm. things to do, and and um, sat under the uh, the curly Lambeau and Vince Lombardi statues out the front at, at uh, Lambeau Fields, and and so growing up with um, a great love of sport and football, and then getting to do it for a long period of time. Um, my father was um, the CEO of the Richmond Football Club, which is a, it's a famous old football club here, and uh, be like being the it would be like being the CEO of the Green Bay Packers, and and to have that every day of your life, and and as I mentioned, those ten minutes when he'd come home from work and sit on the end of my bed, and I, it, all the man smells would come into my kid's bedroom, and because he was a smoker, and it was probably a whatever the Brute Thirty Three or Old Spice or Brill Cream or whatever it was that he had on his hair, and at the time and uh, and so I got this wonderful introduction into the game which was quite unique just through my father's circumstances and then I got to work in the game myself and um, my, my father was a, a, a wonderful person wonderful influence on my life but he he probably had some you know he had some elements of his own life which you know might have been much different to mine but unfortunately for him they played out in that he he was a, he was a big drinker and um and, and alcohol was just part of our growing up, to be honest. And uh, and uh, he was in Sydney, and um, he was what he was the commissioner of the AFL at the time. And um, he, he he met a woman who was a prostitute, who was a, um, a heroin addict. She was on methadone treatment for her heroin addiction, and somehow my dad ended up with um, with methadone in his system, and he'd been drinking, and and it killed him. And um, I was about 20, 27 or twenty eight at the time, and um, and I remember receiving the news, and uh, and um, and I literally did fall to my knees, you know. So it was, um, you know, and I think it's probably a sadness which is never quite left in in, in lots of ways, you know, because we were we were I, I needed um, that ten minutes which I had with him at the end of my bed when I was a ten year old boy, then became the the ten minutes phone calls I had every night of my life because I was doing a job which I was out of my depth with of which I really needed his support so it seemed I don't want to sound sort of transactional about it but I we still had a lot of talking to do you know we had a lot of conversations and um, and so I, I and it's funny because I'm not funny but I, I recently went to a uh, it was a funeral of uh, very good family friends of which you know my dad and, and the guy who, who passed away were were great friends and, and this guy was like eight or nine years older than my dad and uh, and it got to the plate at the time when they were doing the eulogy and the guy's name's Brian LeBrock and I, I was I was watching it and I was I, and I was with my sister and I thought to myself my dad should be doing this eulogy you know because mm. he, he would have been doing this eulogy you know and so that that's the days that was the day where I you know I fell to my knees and I, and I knew I knew that life would never be the same from that point on Right. What would you? What did you learn from that? And by by saying that, what would you say to our listeners out there who still have loved ones, whether it's their father, brother, sister, yeah. anybody of that nature, best friend, best mate, as you'd say? Uh, what would you yeah. say to them uh, so that they don't have those missed conversations that you obviously will never have again? Yeah. Look, I, I think you're always probably going to be left with some amount of talking that you never did. That you. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, I, I, I would say that it would be um, the, the notion of everyone, people want to talk about vulnerability as a, as an important as an important thing, as in particularly when it comes to leadership or being a parent or, or whatever it might be, because it, you can't actually even pretend to be an authentic version of who you are unless you're actually prepared to be vulnerable and and. And because if if you're if you're not, you're actually representing yourself as someone other than who you are, and and so there's that element of just vulnerability as in presenting yourself as someone who's closer to who you are. And I, and I think probably at the time I was so so strong on showing that I wasn't just a young person in a out of my depth that. That I didn't allow myself to be to, just to say, look, clearly I'm going to struggle in this environment. The second part is that by opening yourself up to be vulnerable, you're at least giving 
an invitation for people to step into whatever space that you've created to perhaps help you, you know, at that time. And I, I probably could be vulnerable enough with my dad at that time where he would step into that space, but never never in a way where he would actually answer the, the thing for me. He just helped me think more deeply about it. But the third one is that things like that are going to happen in your life. You know, I didn't expect my dad to – I knew my dad was a rascal, so I knew that there was always a chance that he was going to take a chance in his life, that he was a drinker and he was a risk taker and all these sorts of things. But, you know, he, he, he didn't – he didn't mean to die. He, did, he didn't want it to kill him. Um, but it, it left us with whatever it left us with. Me and, you know, the, the people who loved him, um, he had a very big friendship group. And the crazy thing was I almost become a proxy Alan Schwab. His name is Alan. And, and for a whole period of time, I used to get invited to stuff that I had no entitlement to go to you know, because they sort of missed their mate as much as anything. And, and so, and I realized that wasn't a good thing for me. So I would say that, probably the the answer to your question in is that recognizing that by opening yourself up in in a way where you know you're prepared to um, allow people into a space to help you is the lesson I learned way too late in life because I was so determined to show that I was so in, on top of things you know mm. and um, and so in the case of I, I took the very stoic response to my dad's death, you know, yeah. and and I really and and it was I got on with shit, and I shouldn't have, you know, mm-hmm. because it had actually devastated me, and it devastated me at a level which, you know, I think people would have expected, but I never allowed them to support me because I I just I saw no means by which people could. But there were clearly thousands of ways of which people could, you know. Mm-hmm. But I saw no way of which anyone could possibly make this sadness go away. Uh, but there was a lot, and so, so therefore I closed off any any prospect of it, you know. Yeah, I'm, I can definitely relate to that. When my father passed, when I was young, uh, twenty four, mm-hmm. I think it was. I was actually in in Honduras at the time and got the call, and then I went back, and there was one woman, one person actually who put up with my shit, <laughs> to yeah. put it bluntly. And that's what happens, doesn't it? You yeah. end up layering someone else instead of actually just being yeah. understanding as yourself. So, you know, well, you'd relate very much to it yeah. then. And, and, yeah, I, yeah. and so what well, I did I, actually years ago mm-hmm. – sorry, you go ahead. No, no, go ahead. I started writing down the conversations I wished we got to have. And, and that was actually quite helpful. So I, I literally just started with a blank page and and a black wing pencil, and I just started writing. You know, what were the conversations we we didn't have? And it was now, you know, now that I'm a parent, now that I'm, you know, and I, and I hadn't, you know, I, I got divorced and I'm remarried, all that stuff, all, all terrific. But you mm. know, I've had, I've got a transgender child. You know, it's just some of the things that you go through that that he never got to experience with us. You know that you know he never got he his grandkids were only babies. You know, I had I didn't have children at the time. That sort of stuff. So yeah, you know the house that he never got to sit in. All all the things. You know the little little things. The uh, um, you know the the team of which we both loved. Richmond won its first premiership in thirty one years in two thousand and seventeen. You know, and I and that was my first thought. You know, how much he would have loved this day because all his grandkids barrack for the team that he he was a life member of and he was such a prominent person in. And they hadn't won a premiership since the time he was there. Mm. And, um, and then they win their first in, in 2017. So they win like the Super Bowl, you know. Yeah. And, um, and then they win another one two years later. So they won it this year as well. And, and we all, and all, the whole family went there in our Richmond state, which the reason why we are actually that thing is because of him. You know, that's the lineage mm-hmm. of the grandkids who never got to meet him. They're all there and they're, you know, who, who are all now young adults. Who love it. Yeah, kind of. <laughs> I'm just pond. I'm just running through all this in my mind. I mean, it's just amazing uh, the way you lay it all out there. So, with all that information, and I mean, goodness, you were by far the youngest, the CEO of the of the Richmond Football Club, which is absolutely amazing. And then you've got all of this, you know, stories with your father and the things that occurred. So, with all that information, how are you paying it forward? What are you doing now 
that is making a difference in other people's lives? How are you using that information and paying it forward? I think in the main way, it's the... I reckon in, in the term, you know, you use the word gratitude, but a certain generosity in, in, I'd like to think in everything that I do, really, that I, like I, um, it can be at a, at a very quite practical level and that I, you know, I, I wrote a book and put it together and I give it away. I don't ask people to pay for it. Um, if uh, I realise the best way that I could help organisations who are, so not-for-profits or charities that I relate to, and a few of them, a lot of them relate to mental health, is um, is that I find that you know, the best thing I can do is help their leadership rather than serve soup in the kitchen, if you know what I mean. It's, uh, if I can mm-hmm. help their leaders lead, that's because I, I think leading in, a not, in those not-for-profits, those charitable organisations, is unbelievably difficult, you know, that it's, it's highly competitive for a start. Everyone's chasing funding. Mm-hmm. There's no lack of decent. There's no lack of valuing what they're actually producing and they're giving to the world. But they can, they can, they can have a very high, they can have very high purpose in what they're actually doing, but can't build performance into what they're doing, as in how they generate the sort of funding they need then to do more of the stuff that they are good at, whether it's working schools, working communities, whatever it might be. And so what I try to do is I, I, I allow people who are CEOs of not-for-profits to do my programs for nothing. I don't charge them anything. And, and so the work I do is with mainly CEOs and uh, of, of businesses, and I've built my own IP around that. And I'm, I'm a great believer that we don't, we don't – organisations and people don't rise to the level of their ambition. They, they fall to the level of their systems or they fall to the level of their capability. And mm-hmm. Of ambition in these organisations, but trying to match that with capability and back it up is really difficult for them. So I, I help them with the capability piece, and um, and from time to time, that's actually saying to them, you might have to lower your ambition a bit here. This is you know, I, I get the idea of what you're trying to do, um, but let's build towards that rather than um, put it out there and overpromise and then find that we can't actually back up what we're trying to do. And, so that's I, I teach leadership and I teach my leadership to um, to CEOs of not for profits at no cost. Um, I give my art away. I, I do you know so my, I do a lot of my work now as an artist is um, is digital. So I studied fine art a few years ago. I went back and did that, and I now do that. I give that away, and and I I've never charged anything for any of my art at any point. And that's going to be a thing that I'm going to I'm going to do. You know because I, I think it's a I feel that it's been a, it's a gifted thing to me if you mm-hmm. like I have to work at it. But, um, and I do it digitally, so there's actually a means by which I do it. Um, and uh, so I give my art away, and, and people often ask, oh, can I buy your stuff? And I just say, no, no, here's the file. You know, <laughs> yeah, go and, you know, go and make it as big. Like I've actually seen it you know, made in some cases, you know, the size of a wall or something like that, which wow. is really cool. You know? That is cool. Yeah, something to draw on your iPad. So that's, there's also, that's a nice feeling as well. Absolutely, man. I thank you for it. Those those nonprofits out there, they're having a hard time, as you said, and they can't advertise. Me being a business and marketing strategist, I work with, I get contacted by nonprofits on the regular, and I've never charged a nonprofit. I just kind of help them out with some of their, how to have conversations, you know, about their organization, but they can't market like the traditional business can, at least not here in the U.S. anyway. And I just think it's the saddest thing because many of them are doing absolutely amazing things in the community and, and abroad, you know, all over the world. And it's just hard for them to get the funding. Yeah. And, okay, and it's, and it's, and they're making so many trade-offs, you know, they're, they're underpaying their staff. They're asking to work longer hours mm. there. It's just that, you know, people who have made a choice to put aside what other, you know, ambitions they have for the, for the support, like it might be an indigenous community in central Australia or something along those lines. Mm. There's a, yeah, that, that, that's, there's not one aspect of that which is easy. You know, we, we think our work in leadership's hard at different times, but try and work into in some. If you're actually, you know, making a choice to go into some of the most complex, ambiguous, where you know, often very highly politicised areas of that not-for-profit work. You know, and and we and I'm finding a little bit with mental health, but certainly in indigenous communities with first people stuff and all those things, they're, they're unbelievably complex issues mm. of which. Unless you actually are prepared to to understand the nuance and all that, you're almost being culturally disrespectful of how deep those problems actually are. 
and uh, and that's you know that's something I've had to learn as as time's gone on. Right, and then as leaders within the organization, oftentimes you're dealing with a lot of you're you're managing and leading a lot of people who are there 100% volunteer. Uh, in, in many cases, I mean, they've got paid employees. There's no doubt about it, and that's the big misconception about nonprofits. They have to make money to stay alive, you know. So to 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 keep operating, it doesn't. What they do isn't free. Somebody's got to pay for it. Uh, so no, and, and even and sometimes government gets behind it and all that, yeah. and, and and that might be a great thing, but that just adds to the complexity because now exactly. it's actually got now you got politics involved. <laughs> and it was it was political as it was. Now it's polit- Now it's actually yeah. political. You know. So, I just yeah. recently took a course on um, on government contracting since you mentioned that, mm-hmm. and you know I was in the military for worked for the government for. 29 years you know three years as a civilian and i've signed a lot of i've taken on a lot of contracts but i didn't know that contracts with a government agency in the u.s anyway they have up to even after you complete the job they have up to two years where they can call back the funding because they might find one paragraph that was misread and said you didn't operate in this manner we need you know yeah, you need to, yeah. you, you owe 70 percent of what we paid you like oh my no way i'm not <laughs> there's so many other things no, not even getting involved no. in it man no and it, and, it, and, and it can't tell me that's a good thing it just oh, ends no. up yeah and there's all this good intention just gets lost and and people get mm-hmm. fatigued out and um, and good ideas end up becoming just a just too hard just and, too uh, frustrating just too frustrating so that so the work that you're doing is, you know, how do I help someone manage that complexity without mm-hmm. necessarily getting yourself involved in the complexity? It's it's the it's the, the, the teach a man to fish rather than you know feed them fish mentality, and that mm-hmm. that was really where I came from. That I I've, I've built my own IP around how how you lead and the systems of leadership. I'm a great believer mm-hmm. that you have to build a system of leadership for yourself, and and it's based on identity and habits and these sorts of things. And if you get to do that on a consistent basis regularly, it's the compounding value of your own knowledge and your own learning all comes out to play, but you've got to start at some point. And, and that's, um, and that's the work I do with leaders is just basically it's a system of leadership, which you have to build it around, you know, your own way of wanting to lead, but there are certain things. And, um, if you're not building, for example, regular reflection into your, into your leadership, and that's something I got from sports, sports, great at reflection. We, we spend a lot of time working out why we won and lost, you know, Mm -hmm. and, we bring we draw as many learnings from that as we possibly can and we use that in the context of the next game there's no doubt about that the business moves on to the next game without even thinking about what happened to the last game you know mm-hmm. and that's military as you know that military is outstanding at reflection so sport and military the hot the two high performance worlds they are you know they, they do the post-mortem you know they do mm-hmm. the training exercise and say was that a good training exercise who performed well who could have performed better how could we do that differently? How do we bring that learning, not just for the people who did the exercise, but for people who didn't do the exercise? For, for you know, and that's sport is outstanding at that. Business doesn't do that at all, in my mm-hmm. experience. And um, and I think that's one of the great, you know, the great opportunities for business is actually how do they build a system of reflection into their day to day existence. You know, I've, I've never found anyone got their competitive advantage out of their inbox. You know, if you spend your whole mm-hmm. life answering emails, we you know, Seth Godin's got a great saying, busy is the new lazy. And I, yeah. and I love that, you know, that we just get caught up and people actually say, hey, you go, how are you going? They say, I'm busy, as though yeah. it's like a badge of honour. Well, there's no badge of honour in being busy. There's a badge of honour in getting stuff done. Right, you know, being productive. progress. I'm productive. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> no, you're absolutely right. Yeah, and yeah. in the military, we call it the after-action review. And yeah. after every single, rather it's a real-world mission, a training mission, after every single thing we do, immediately afterwards, everybody's got to hand in three ups and three downs. What three things went right? What three three things didn't go well? And what are your suggestions, at least one suggestion, on how to make it better the next time? And it's yeah. extremely how powerful. powerful. Oh, very, very powerful. And we keep that we keep that as a as a as a um, archive. You know, to make sure that yeah. the next guy comes in, says we don't do that. Yeah, so so to, so that if you talk about gratitude, well, I'm sure there's someone that you might have saved <laughs> lives by, you know. So, by someone someone's learning of um, of two years ago is still being valued now, and um, and it's and it's again it compounds on each other, and 
And so sometimes you, you don't want to give all of that information. You don't then spread all of that information to everyone because it just ends up being too much. But you just say, what is the – there'll be just a core piece of information which in the – and, and the term I use is how do we turn knowledge into wisdom? You know, so knowledge, you've given everyone a lot of knowledge now. Mm-hmm. So how do we actually make that now wisdom, as in it has a deeper understanding? And I think the, the, the answer to that often is it's not what I learned today. It's what I'm prepared to teach tomorrow. So once you're teaching it, it becomes wisdom. You know, mm-hmm. it's, it's got a deeper understanding. Right. It's very hard to teach something of which is just someone else's knowledge or understanding. You're just passing on information. Mm-hmm. You're giving it no context in terms of your own understanding and your own experiences if you're not doing it that way. Right. That's brilliant, man. So, Cameron, we're at the point where we're going to pay it forward to our listeners. You ready to do that? Yep, sure. Excellent. So share one to three actionable steps that men of abundance can take today. Okay. I've got a uh, one of the things I teach in the program. So this is, this is a um, – for anyone in any role, and, and you can give it the context even as a parent. You can give it in the context as someone who's a creative. It doesn't, it doesn't matter. It's, um, I think, set aside three hours every three months to answer three questions. That would be my goal. So you, you, you said you, you'll, you'll struggle to find three hours in your diary in the next you know, a few days, but you'll have no trouble finding three hours in your diary in three months' time. So you just set, it, set the three hours. Just get into your calendar and just whack it in there. And the three questions are, the first one is, you know, what does this role expect of me? And so this is whatever role you want to actually do. So if you're a leader in an organization or even as a parent, what does parenting expect of me? And you've got to go deep on it. You got It's not just that, yeah, there is the transactional, I'm going to pick my kids up from school, or there is the transactional, I've got to make sure I'm well organized or whatever it is in the workplace. But what does it expect of you as a leader? And I, and I think on basically if you're in a leadership role, it'll come back to, are you prepared to honour the role, as in recognise that the role is actually not about you? It's actually about the people who have aligned their careers to your leadership, and that might be, in lots of cases, just circumstances. You just happen to be the person there. And the second one is the word belief. And, and I love the question, do you believe in your people and do your people believe in you, just as a, as a starting point? Because you then have to ask yourself, what makes me believable as a leader? And then what do I need to see from my from the people who are working in this organisation for me to believe in them. And that can be a character capability, whichever way you want to look at it. So the first question is, what does the, you know, what does the role expect of me? The second question is, what do I expect of the role? Because the role has to actually be congruent with your own expectations and wants and desires and values and all those sorts of things. And if there's any incongruity there, well, you're better off actually you're going to have to work. You're going to have to work into that conversation. And if you can't get resolution on that, you might have to actually take your career elsewhere. And and I find people very reluctant to actually do that. And by missing out on that opportunity, I find people who may be just in roles in life of which they just genuinely don't enjoy. And why would you want to spend eight, nine, ten hours of your day doing stuff that you don't enjoy? And the third question is, what do I expect of myself? Because if the role and the job and the work you're doing is actually costing you other critical parts of who you are, it's, if it's costing you the relationship with your kids, it's costing you your fitness, your health, your well-being, your mindset, your other things that you love doing. You know, in my case, you know, I, I always try to practice some art, even as a CEO. Um, if, it, if it ever stopped doing those things, well, again, you've got to make a choice here. I spend a lot of time with people who have spent a lifetime climbing a mountain and they've got to the top and they don't like the view. And I reckon it's mainly because they've never actually taken the time out to reflect on the various stages of their career in the way that I'm talking about. And by doing it the first time, you'll feel really awkward. Three months' time, it'll be a bit better. Three months' time, you're just by, within a year, people become really good at answering those three questions. And they've been very, very powerful in the, in the stuff that I've been doing. That is extremely powerful. I'd never heard it in quite that way. I love that it's broken down like that because it really gives people a pathway to decide why they are so miserable. Yeah. <laughs> and they just don't so know I, why. I meet a lot of miserable people. And look, and yeah. I'm going to say I've come out of the miserable world. I, got, yeah. I was working in a sport that I absolutely loved with people I enjoyed doing, and I'd, I'd, I'd wake up in the morning and – I'd be driving into work and there'd be some like cleaning windows. I think, geez, I'd love to have your job today. <laughs> you know, <it's> like <laughs> you do anything not to be doing what you're going to do, you know, and it's, and, and look, it'll always go through phases. I get that. Right. But, yeah. 
you know, there's a line if, if you know, uh, to make change happen, to make change happen, you're in charge. You know, 100%. like you're in charge of your own change. Yeah. You know, so, so you, you know, some stage you're going to have to, but but you have to inform that decision. You can't just make the change without informing yourself of the decision. So this is a this is a practice of informing the decision just within a framework. Yeah, yeah. very good, very good point. What rituals make the biggest impact in your life? Um, as a person who struggles with depression, morning exercise is pretty much the key for me. Mm-hmm. So I, I've got a, um, I have a routine where, where um, the alarm goes at quarter to five. Um, I'm in the pool or on the bike by between five five fifteen, and um, and I do those in. I ride with groups and I swim in a squad. So I'm I'm um, I'm getting that sense of connection a little bit. I really mm-hmm. miss that from sport now that I've got my own business. Um, so building that connection so that would be and i'm not naturally either people say oh that's a really strict ritual and all that stuff but it never came it's not even though i come from a background of sport i i wasn't you know i'm not that you know i wasn't someone who was the gifted athlete growing up or anything like that but mm-hmm. but i'm I, I swam five kilometers this morning so it's it's now it's 10 quarter to 11 a.m melbourne time um i was in the pool a quarter past and out at seven and i swam with a group and i swam five kilometers so what's it three three miles or whatever yeah, about three miles. um and um and uh and on the other days i get on a bike and i ride in a peloton with a group of people and um joined a, just a local cycling club and uh and they love it they're really passionate about it probably more passionate about it than <laughs> i am but i just enjoy getting on the bike with with these guys and i've built some friendships from it and uh so we do a 50 kilometer ride so probably again you have about 30 30 odd k yeah so it's five or five or 50 is my morning routine um mm. and and even if i miss um which i do i probably miss one or two a week uh i'm um i'm back on it the next day that's the that's the key yeah don't beat yourself up just get right back to it i love it man so what are you reading or listening to that you'd recommend to our abundant leaders and why um, well, I, I would read anything by a writer by the name of David White, W-H-Y-T-E. Um, he's a really interesting guy. He was a um, he's a, an Irishman, and he's just got a beautiful turn of phrase. He's a guy who you actually uh, you don't have to actually read, or you just go into YouTube and, and there's there's a whole lot of stuff that he where he reads his own stuff, and uh, he's got this beautiful melodic way of speaking. You know, you, you're listening to how he says it rather than what he says half the time, and um, <laughs> Uh, he's just and and, and I, I can I can turn it off and I go and I have to write notes so you have to collect your thinking and then curate your thinking and that sort of stuff so I love his stuff um, I'm going to recommend a book there's a there's a there's a wonderful uh, football coach in Australia uh, his name's Neil Danaher D-A-N-I-H-E-R and he's he came from country Victoria ended up being a um, an outstanding footballer and but he, his career was pretty much over by the time he was 21. He had four knee reconstructions. And um, then he went into coaching and he coached Melbourne Football Club when I was CEO there. And uh, he's got motor neurone disease, so Lou Gehrig disease. Mm. Um, as it's, and he's written this book, which is the, the – it started off as a letter to his grand, the grandchildren that he'll never get to have this conversation with. And, um, and he started a – as part of his – when he got his diagnosis, he um, – he um, he set up a charity called Fight MND, so Fight Motor Neurone Disease, and he calls motor neurone disease the beast. He's even given it a name. He's given it like an identity, and uh, he's raised over hundreds of millions of dollars in in his dying days. So, and I know him really well. So he's my age, and um, each time I see him, it's like a bit of him's just not there as it was. But he's actually over the last six months written the book, which is the conversations he would. Um, uh, he would, uh, he'll never get to have with his grandkids, and uh, and it's really, it's very powerful. But it's also very practical. And it's very pragmatic. It's very systems oriented because he comes at it as, as a coach, and it's called all said and done. And he's used the Lou Holtz saying, "When it's all said and done, more is said than done." So he's used that. And and one of the lines in it, he says, "Is life's good, but it doesn't promise to be fair." You know, life's good, but it doesn't promise to be fair. Yeah, and, that's uh, the truth. And uh, so that's and it's it's. Uh, yeah, it's Australian. It comes and for anyone from the states, they would find it um, a really interesting because he comes from very much uh, a rural farm, you know, out in the middle of nowhere background, and and he was one of eleven kids, and there was four boys in the family, 
and all the four boys got to play in the same team together in the number one competition in Australia. So it's oh, an amazing wow. thing yeah. in what actually happened. So he's part, there's a lot of folklore in it. And, and I love uh, Dr. Michael Gervais's stuff, um, who's a uh, sports performance psychologist from um, from the States who, who does a lot of work with uh, Pete Carroll at the Seattle Seahawks. And um, he's got a, a really good podcast called Finding Mastery. And, um, and he talks a lot about the three things that we get to uh, work on in life or we get to try and develop in life. He talks about mind, body and craft. And I, I think that's a lovely sim- simple way of thinking as well. And they're obviously interrelated, but he says we, we get to work on our mind, our body and our craft. And mm. uh, I think that approach has got is really quite sound. So they'd be the things I'd, I'd recommend. Wonderful. Yeah, thanks for that. that- all sound like amazing books, but that second one I'd definitely love to get a hold of. What do you feel holds most people back from living a life of true abundance? Bad systems. Is it, that like sounds really boring. I know that, but they don't have a good system. In they don't they, they don't build habits that that support the things they want to be good at. And, th- and this came to mind because when I, when I I studied fine art when I was in my fifties, I, I went to university, studied fine art. And I was like a tribal elder at this at, at first year university. <laughs> you know, all the, they're all 18, 19 year olds. I'm early 50s. And I thought, and my main stuff's drawing. And, I, and we did life drawing, you know, which is model, piece of butcher paper, charcoal, 10 minutes to do the drawing. And, and you get to see which, which of the people are naturally gifted, naturally talented drawers. And then three years later, when they finished the fine art degree, you then get to see the body of work that they've created. And I, and I worked out there was a very little resemblance between what my thinking was in regard to who was a talented artist and who in the end produced the interesting work, the stuff that we're all talking about. And I realised it was the same mindset that the young artists had as I saw in the young athletes who I'd see come into the system at 18, 19, 20 years of age and then have great careers. Even though they're very different, you know, um, uh, interpretation of their gifts, if you like, um, but it was the same mindset. They were they were the most curious people in the room. They were the ones who slept in their studios. You know, they just lived for it. But they had a very systematic process of producing art. You know, they had a certain amount of times they would do it. They would they weren't allowing themselves to get distracted whilst they were doing it. So building systems. So I'm a great believer in in habits. And like we talked about one before about a morning mm-hmm. habit, a morning ritual, um, and and always thinking that I get the idea of having the ambition of abundance, but have we got the system of abundance? <laughs> you know, have we actually got something in our life where we, you know, we've, you know, that we've got, um, you know, we if we if we if we want to get fit, have we? No, when I do my leadership programs, I might have fifteen CEOs in the room. I go, how many people in the room would like to be fitter than what they are now? And inevitably, twelve, thirteen put their hand up. And then I say, put your hand up if you don't know how to get fitter. And no one puts their hand up. So it's not the fact that they have a lack of knowledge. They have never had, an, and they haven't been able to create a system for themselves to apply the, the knowledge they have to create the outcome that they're looking for. So I'm always focused on the systems of it. And, and, and it comes from sport as well. And your military would be the same, but it's not team versus team. If I'm watching the Patriots play the Packers, it's system versus system. You know, mm-hmm. is what I'm looking at. You know, mm-hmm. and so yeah, that's that's that that world view, if you like, is can you build a good system for yourself, which is built on habits, and also do you see yourself as a person who should be fit or deserves to be fit, or you know should be leading or deserves to be leading that type of stuff. Yeah, absolutely. That's a new one, and I like it, I, I, and I 100% agree with it for sure. So, what does being a man of abundance mean to you, Cameron? Uh, being generous, I think. Uh, and, and, and trying to be as true to yourself as you possibly can. Uh, and for someone who from time to time, um, I'm not very kind to me in regard to that, but I know the not being kind to me thing actually has probably had a um, an upside in that it's forced me to go deeper than perhaps I would naturally have been inclined to go um, in regard to my thinking and trying to find solutions for stuff. Um so I think a man of, of abundance is um, is being generous, and I would say it's mainly about: Are you prepared to teach? Are you prepared to embrace teaching? And and the, the strength of that is that if you teach something to someone 
today and it really resonates with them, that gift just keeps on going. Mm-hmm. You know, it's you don't know where the meaning. If you help someone with to find meaning in something, uh, I call it an unknown meaning for an unknown person. As in, you've helped that person find meaning, but you don't know where they're going to take it. So I've explained, for instance, you you until this conversation started, you had no idea who Neil Danaher was. You probably actually had not much idea about Australian football or all these things. So I may have now just given you an idea to read a book you wouldn't otherwise have read, which I'd feel confident that you'll finish that book with it, with uh, sticky notes and underlines and <laughs> all that sort of stuff hanging out of it. And then you might you might then say to someone else, "Oh, you got to read this book from this bloke from Country Victoria. You know, it's fantastic. You know." That's the that's the gift, I think, and that's what abundance means to me. Right. And, yeah, exactly what you just said is much of the reason why I love to have these conversations because I'm hoping that I share some insight and then I can share your wisdom with all the listeners and everybody else, and it just keeps on going. Absolutely that's love right. it, man. So we are going to close this up. We are most certainly going to have your website, designceo.com.au. Is that right? That's right, yeah. Yeah, we'll we'll have that linked up in the show notes. But another thing I would like to have linked up in the show notes is some way, somehow, to view some of your art. I would love to see some of that personally. Yeah, it's actually on my website, which is good, which I've just – I took a long time to actually put it up there. But it's actually – it's there. A lot of it is Australian football because I I grew up – I was obsessed with superheroes growing up, you know, like a lot of kids Mm -hmm. are and – and so my and, and my art was um, as a kid was very comic book like you know just the classic um, Batman Robin Spider Man stuff and Superman and and I actually really like the metaphor of the superhero you know because Superman mm-hmm. has his kryptonite you know Superman becomes really boring without kryptonite you know like he just becomes very one dimensional but the you know the the fact that there was still something which could bring him undone was and so growing up as um, as a person who who had athletes and, and footballers as my heroes um, and then seeing their human failings in lots of ways when I got to work in it and also my own failings I and mean, even that of my father's who was another hero. I like the metaphor of the superhero. So I've, I actually went back to quite a comic book way of drawing about um, 10 years ago. And, um, and so a lot of it's just footballers. I'll just see it in the moment. I'll capture old images, but a lot of it, I might be sitting on a train or a tram or something and I'll just start drawing the person sitting opposite me. Yeah. Um, so a lot of it's observations, a lot of it's that. So it's on the website designceo.com.au and there's just a, a tag for, for art, yeah, which is which is on there. Man, I'm, I just discovered it. I'm looking at it now and I'm blown away. I mean, the, the, <laughs> seriously, the just the figures. I can see where you're talking about with the, with the comics and stuff like that and the superheroes. But, um, wow, yeah. this is brilliant, Cameron. Absolutely. the the oh, energy I can feel the energy and the the pain everything else that you're portraying here it's absolutely beautiful guys make sure you go check that out and I'll have that linked up in the show notes for sure so make sure you go check it out Cameron it was an amazing conversation I greatly appreciate your time what did we not talk about that you want to ensure that our listeners get out of our conversation today uh, just just I suppose those who find themselves leading it's a um, um, it's a beautiful honour, and um, and the only way you get to honour it is if you honour yourself, and um, and and that's that's a forever thing. That's a work in progress. That's something which um, which is a um, just when you think you've got it, you realise you haven't got it, and uh, and the day you realise you haven't got it is just an opportunity to try and get it, and uh, that's probably <laughs> I've spent the last thirty years trying to get it. Really, as much as anything, yeah. Absolutely, I was trying to pay attention to your conversation, but I'm just lost in this art, man. It's absolutely beautiful. <laughs> yeah, good. <laughs> I'm gonna sit and stare. I did one of Trumpy uh, there. You've probably seen one there, Donald. He's uh, he's, he's up there uh, with yeah. a queen. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> I, I just I'm amazed because I I'm, it takes me back to high school because I had a friend in high school who was just a brilliant, brilliant artist. I mean, you ask him to draw something, and I'm looking at the image here of serena williams and it my oh, goodness yeah. gracious man it just um i'm amazed it's it's an it's a talent and it's an art that you're definitely i feel you're born with um and uh you yeah can, it's, it's you a funny thing into. whether you are there's then there's actually you know there's um uh there's 
There's actually one I did, one of my favourites actually, Kershaw, the, the, the pitcher, the baseball one, which mm. you might see there as well. And um, where well, you're just trying to capture sort of a, a moment of that, yeah, I, particularly the almost the, in that case the point of delivery and, and, and baseball's not a game that uh, that I've grown up with but I, I love the folklore behind it and the mm-hmm. stories behind it cricket is probably you know almost the Australian English whatever version of the right, game we yeah. similar sort of mentality about it I think and um, and it because it becomes totally a one-on-one thing doesn't it you know it's mm-hmm. battery pitcher you know like yeah, there's nothing else exactly. really um quarterback's a little bit like that but he's got a few more options you know so um so to have uh, trying to capture that and 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 and, and you notice the serena the, the ones in there there's a lot of uh, boxing i don't like boxing particularly but mm-hmm. just the pure one-on-one nature of it you know is is something which i go wow you're, you're putting your you're putting everything on the line once you get in the ring you know you're putting everything in the line once you on the line once you step onto court in a tennis you know andre agassi's book he actually likens tennis to boxing he says it's they're the two closest sports you know for that reason mm-hmm. and uh, but you step on a you know pitcher's mound and you know, everyone's watching you you know um and they're the and that's you know the the the, the sports like australian football is very is is a fluid sport it doesn't stop and start the same way as american football does or it's more like soccer in in regard to that and um and so to they're different you know you, you can actually your teammate can support you but in those sports where it's just you you know and everything might be going beautifully for you in a in um in a in any but then all of a sudden you've lost it in two you know you might be pitching beautifully and then someone hits you out of the park you know, and it's yeah. all over um, <laughs> exactly and uh, and that's uh, there's something you know quite unique about that yeah, for sure. All right, brother. Again, very, very talented. I love it. And thanks for the conversation. Thanks for the insights. And thanks for the wisdom. I look forward to passing it on. All right. Good on you. Thank you very much for the opportunity. I really appreciate it. My pleasure. That's all for today, Abundance Leaders. For more about our guests and the powerful information we shared with you today, be sure to sign up for our mailing list at menofabundance.com. We appreciate your time and look forward to hanging out with you on our next episode. So until then, be sure to pay it forward and live your life of abundance.